This episode is not sponsored, but I would like to talk about James's Place. This charity exists to save the lives of men in suicidal crisis. The charity was set up by my parents-in-law in 2008 after their 21-year-old son, James, died by suicide 10 days after a minor operation. James had no history of mental illness or depression and had sought urgent help for anxiety and suicidal thoughts, but didn't find it. Suicide is the leading cause of death for men under 50. The first James's Place opened two years ago in Liverpool, the first of its kind in the UK, and has supported more than 400 men experiencing suicidal crisis, delivered by trained therapists. A new James's Place will open in London in early 2021. You can find out more at jamesesplace.org.uk. Hi, my name is Matt Haig. Um, my greatest fear is losing um, people I love. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. My guest this week is Matt Haig, author of the best-selling books Reasons to Stay Alive, How to Stop Time, and Notes on a Nervous Planet, which is one of my top most favourite books that sits firmly on my bedside table. His new novel, The Midnight Library, is out now and was a number one Sunday Times bestseller, an instant New York Times bestseller, and a BBC Two Between the Covers book club pick. Hello, Matt. Hello, nice to be here, Cressida. Thank you so much for being here. And also, congratulations on your on this book. I've actually just been with my little niece, Esme, and I said I was uh, speaking with you today. And she said, no way, I've just ordered the Midnight Library. And I said, oh, oh that's the best. Um, so she's very excited. Um, oh, cool. But what does it feel like? Because, you know, obviously, this isn't your first book. Is there kind of more fear or less fear because it because you've written a lot before? There should be less fear, but to be honest, it almost feels like it's my first book, even though this is like, you know, I'm I'm ancient now, obviously, because it's like book 15 or something stupid. But yeah, I actually feel um, quite vulnerable with this one. I don't know why. I haven't written a novel for three years, so that might be part of it. And I, I think even though I've obviously written a lot of nonfiction mental health, I still at my core see myself as a novelist and... Um, it's weird when you've written about your actual life to feel suddenly vulnerable when you're writing made-up stuff like a novel. But, yeah, I don't know why. But this one, I think because I poured so much into it last year, I, put, uh, I, I felt happier with it than any of my other books, certainly my novels. And then as soon as you it's published, which is obviously what you want to be if you're a writer, you want to be published, but as soon as it's published, you, you lose total control. So it, it exists as this sort of perfect thing in your head and then suddenly it's not yours anymore and it's other people and it's there to criticise or whatever or to be read differently to how you see it. But, you know, you have to kind of just let that... And does it feel different writing fiction as opposed to non-fiction? Um, it does, but not always in the way you think, because like people think of fiction more as an escape. But for me, I, I find fiction is a, a way to be 
sometimes even more true because you're kind of confined with nonfiction, obviously, to the facts. And certainly if you're writing about your life, you have to write about things that actually happened. And you have occasionally to be a bit delicate because if you're writing about your parents or your siblings or your partner, then, you know, there's other people involved. Whereas with fiction, I see, you know, fiction is total freedom. That's why I probably... I'm, I'm very proud, obviously, of writing Reasons to Stay Alive and Notes on Nervous Planet, and th- that's the sort of core of my beliefs. But the actual process of writing, I really enjoy writing fiction because uh, it's, you know, it's being paid to daydream, which is just lovely. And you just, yeah, it, it, it's very... Um, yeah, freeing. I've used that word too many times, but yeah, you feel free. Yeah, and in um, Reasons to Stay Alive and Notes on a Nervous Planet, two books that I really, um, I really love. You're very honest and open about your experience with anxiety and depression, and you had a mental breakdown when you were 24. Could you talk about that 24 year old now and that chapter of your life? Yeah, definitely. I um, the thing about it with me is that it came. It seemed to come from out of nowhere. I would not have called the day before I had a breakdown. I would not have called myself a de- someone who had depression or anxiety. I clearly was going through a lot of issues as a young man uh, that I wasn't recognising. I would have said I was a good time person. I was literally living in Ibiza, so I'd gone to the epicentre of parties and um, wildness and staying up all night, and I did all those things. I did. I drank too much, I took drugs, I, I smoked, I was, I was like loud music all the time, four hours sleep a night. Um, so obviously all of that stuff played a part. I wasn't physically healthy but I think underlying that and why I'd become that kind of person was because I just couldn't cope with being in my own head so I couldn't actually cope with stillness or quiet or actually being myself so everything was always about escape and um you know now I'd realize that was a an issue but at the time I didn't stop to think about it you know it was always on with the next thing going out next party or whatever and when I actually became had a breakdown it wasn't like the middle of the night in a nightclub or anything it was 11 o'clock in the morning um this was our third summer in Spain and we were living in a very nice villa and with, with uh, people who uh, who ran this nightclub and we were living a very sort of um, routine existence. I'd been for a run that morning. By my standards then, I was in a quite reasonably healthy patch. Um, I certainly hadn't drank anything that day or anything. And then from out of nowhere, I just had... Uh, this panic attack which I didn't think was a panic attack I thought I was dying because I felt something weird going on in my brain and I I don't mean like weird thoughts I mean like a sensation like it was something very physical in my brain and then in my chest as well it was a very physical thing this is what people don't realize about mental illness is often the symptoms are very physical and um, it was very very physical with me and I felt a very sort of heavy sense of dread and terror and you think of a panic attack as something that lasts about 10 minutes and then you sort of walk it off or you breathe it out and you or you, you know you go out for a walk and then it's gone um this didn't go there's no end to it it was just like I, I was suddenly dropped into this world and 
after I realised I wasn't about to die, I thought I was about to go totally mad. I had such a sort of simplistic view of mental health where I thought you were either sane or you were mad. And so I, I knew I wasn't quite sane. So I was thinking, oh, I must be mad. I didn't see it as a kind of scale. And um, yeah, I, I, I was just in a total mess. And I still find it quite hard um, to talk about or describe those few days in Spain where I sort of like was being prescribed diazepam. I, I was sort of floating and feeling heavy. But the main thing is it was just this very new, horrible 24-7 reality, which I just thought I couldn't get out of. I was in this state of um, simultaneous depression and panic, um, existential, but outwardly, apart from probably being a bit wide-eyed and, a, you know, a bit sweaty uh, uh, and pacing around. Outwardly, I looked like a normal, healthy young man. And, yeah, inwardly, it just felt like everything was um, burning to the ground. And it was very, very hard, that juxtaposition between those two um, states. And I was suicidal and I wanted to end it all, but it wasn't like a death wish. I, I, I was someone who'd always been petrified. I was like a hypochondriac. I was scared of death, scared of dying, couldn't cope with people talking about death and stuff. And yet suddenly I was suicidal, but it was simply because all of a sudden this other thing had happened, which made, was even scarier. Um, it was like, how do I live? You know, I was 24, so how do I live with the rest of my adult life ahead of me? in this state. And I assumed, weirdly, because depression plays tricks on you, that I was going to be feeling like that forever because I hadn't known how I was get, got into that mess. So I had no idea how I'd um, get out of it. So yeah, it, it was it was like a, it was a suicidal, but a kind of desperation. Like um, I've heard of suicidal thoughts being described before, like you're trapped in a burning building. It's not like you suddenly like the idea of jumping out of a window, but if the other option is the fire, then you, you might suddenly find yourself considering something you've never considered before. And that was the case with me. And um, I was very lucky. I see it now. I didn't see myself as having any luck at the time, but I was very lucky that I had a partner. I was very lucky that I had parents that I could come back and live with and who were relatively open-minded and accepting. But yeah, at the time, I almost wanted no one. I always wanted to just disappear uh, from the planet. Do you think for you, was was there a, a certain trigger that you remember or is it just something that just felt like it just happened? Well, I mean, like a lot of people, I have a sort of family history. You know, my mother was uh, had postnatal depression when I was young. Um, I've got a great-grandmother who died by suicide. There's obviously cases in my family tree where you think, OK, well, it could be from that, it could be a genetic thing. But I, I, I feel like with me, it was also a total... Uh, I felt like I was in a, a dead end in life, I think, because even though I was young, even though I had everything in front of me, I, I really struggled with self-esteem. I, I can now, looking back, all of those were like warning signs that I was reaching a point of anxiety which wasn't natural. Um, but 
at the time, I was just sort of thinking about going to the pub that day or whatever. And I, I could bluff it. I could bluff confidence. Yeah, it's a weird thing because it was by far, I mean, I was sort of ill for three years in terms of the breakdown and recovery. And then ever since then, even now, I can occasionally have little bouts of anxiety and depression. And it is horrible when you're in that state. But the very strange thing is that I would not press a button to not have had that. I would not press a button um, to have stayed the way I was before. It was almost like because I wasn't recognising a problem, I kind of needed the catastrophe to happen to actually wake up to me and to to actually understand. And in a weird way, I've known more happiness and more gratitude and more good stuff this side of my breakdown than I ever did before. I wasn't a particularly happy child. I wasn't, like, off the scale miserable, but I didn't have the best childhood in some ways at school and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm probably one of those people who are actually happier as a grown-up than a child. And I think part of that is because I had that breakdown and I was forced to confront so many things and to find out who I was yeah. to become myself. Actually, I always find it really difficult if anyone says to me, what would you tell your younger self? I always find it quite an annoying question. But if you were to tell your 24-year-old self something, um, everything that you know now, what would that be? To believe in change. Um, because the one thing I didn't believe in was change. I literally thought I would stay stuck in that moment forever. And I think like, that's almost like a symptom of depression, I think, that idea that nothing good is going to happen. And of course, bad things happen in life. But that worldview that depression gives you, which is so pessimistic, um, is as false as the sort of happiest, clappy optimism. You know, it's totally false. And so I would just try and tell that person to actually have faith. That person, for instance, was convinced he would not see 25 years old. I'm now 45 years old. I'm doing a job that I like, but I've still got people I love. And, you know, yes, I've had bad things happen in my interim. There's been all sorts of grief and stresses and worries, and I've had patches of depression. And, you know, my life's as complicated as anyone else's life. But, you know, there's been so much good stuff in the mix as well that I wouldn't have, you know, believed in. And do you think it's easier now to talk about mental health? Because I think some people would say, oh, it is easier, but actually especially speaking about fear, as a man to say, I'm afraid, why is this still seen as a weakness? It's seen almost as like the exact opposite of what we're conditioned subconsciously and consciously to believe a man is. It's like, it's almost like, um, it, or to the extent that it just doesn't just make yourself feel vulnerable, but to say it to another man makes them feel vulnerable. It's like you're so encouraged to create this idea of stiff of the lip, nonsense I I suppose there is that stuff in terms of physical health too you know men are traditionally bad at going to the doctor full stop you know across the board whether it's about chest pains whatever it is but with mental health yeah it's off the charts I mean men you know the statistics of male suicides and the amount of men who haven't actually ever gone to a doctor or never discussed with anyone about depression is very very staggeringly high and it's like we're It's not even like we don't want to. Sometimes it's very hard to even recognise the problem within ourselves. It's like we're not encouraged to look inwardly at our feelings. And I think one reason why 
male addiction rates are so much higher than female addiction rates is because uh, I feel like addiction is very often just a displacement activity. It's just a way of suppressing a problem behind something. And I was definitely doing that. And as my breakdown told me, you can't do that. You can't actually, if you've got a fundamental problem or an issue that needs addressing, you can't just drink it away or whatever, or dance it away or go to a beefer and just forget about it because it's still there. Wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And at some point you have to face up to yourself or you're going to end up having a breakdown. Yeah, we need as, as almost as part of the education system, I think, to encourage men to have the tools and ability to communicate what they're feeling, not just about when they're feeling depressed and anxious, but about feeling anything, you know, expressing positive things, you know, and to not see that as a female thing, not to see that as, you know, that's just a human thing. That culture of masculinity is very narrow sometimes and very, um, can be very claustrophobic. Mm. When you came out of that time what were sort of the main things that helped you get out of it i probably didn't go about it the right way um with hindsight because i even when i was ill i was a little bit in denial about things so even though i clearly knew i had depression and clearly knew i had anxiety i was reluctant to keep trying pills uh for instance i i tried some medication that didn't work for me and then that put me off trying further medication now obviously i would not advise other people if they're advised to have medication to not take it but that's just the state I was in at the time um I never had talk therapy at that point um I was quite agoraphobic so I was always always reluctant to go out and get help and so I went the long hard way really and um it took me years to sort of hold on and I think Eventually, what happened was time itself disproved a lot of the stuff depression was teaching me. So you'd get to your 25th birthday and you'd realise, well, okay, my depression was wrong about that because I'm alive here at 25. Um, You know, all these bad things I thought had happened that I'd definitely be dead or Andrew would have left me or this would have happened or that would have happened or, you know, didn't happen. So slowly your brain um, begins to adjust. Another thing as well, more practical thing was... um, Exercise. I was physically quite unhealthy when I had my breakdown. And then I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I stopped um, doing stupid things in Ibiza and I got healthy. And um, that wasn't a particular plan. That's just like how it happened because I suddenly didn't want to drink. I was, uh, you know, I was already feeling out of my head. So after years of wanting to be out of my head, I suddenly wanted to be back inside myself. I wanted to be very sober and very normal and not feel weird. So I ended up getting healthier. I lost a lot of weight and, um, yeah, so that a lot of that stuff happened naturally. And my dad was a big runner. Well, he still is a runner. I, I ran a, a half marathon with him just before lockdown. And he really, um, while I was living at home, told me to go out running every morning. And um, I started doing it. And it, it made me, at the first, feel worse because I was just more exhausted because it was just so exhausting having depression. And then after the run, I'd feel exhausted and everything would drain. But I kept at it. And after about the fourth or fifth run, I noticed I started to feel a little bit less anxious. So running was another thing that helped. Um, also, I think the thing about running, especially with panic and fear, 
it sounds silly, but because running um, replicates all the symptoms of fear physically, like, like racing heart, sweating, palpitations and stuff, you, do, you can't really have a panic attack when you're running because you're, you're having the racing heart anyway. You're having that. So it would kind of be my safe space to go on a long run um, because... Yeah, because you, I, 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 I was breathing funny, I was having a racing heart, but I knew why I was having those things, mm. if that makes sense. And, and anxiety, just as a, as a, just a, a word, I, whenever I have, have had anxiety, I, I really sit with that, try and sit with that feeling, think, oh, actually, I'm just really frightened. And I think just the term anxiety has, is, can be a little bit, abstract and a bit kind of what does that even mean and I think people have it so differently you know on different levels and in different ways um for me it's fear and did you experience I know you have written about fear in your books but was that fear feeling intense for you yeah the fear the panic and stuff I mean because the trouble is we have words like anxiety and fear and it covers such a range of things like and and, it, and things like panic attack you know people talk about having a panic attack because they've lost their keys or something an actual full-blown panic attack in the midst of a nervous breakdown is like hell on earth it's just like you feel like you've totally lost yourself and um so yeah, I still think, you know, I've been through all kinds of physical and mental pains in my life, but there's been nothing really that comes close to a real full-blown panic attack. They're horrible things. Fortunately, uh, compared to a lot of mental health issues, they're relatively easy to treat and to actually get on top of. And I'm no longer scared of panic attacks at all. And it's not because... I couldn't have one. It's because I know how to cope with one if they came along. And and it's almost like you have to do a, a Jedi mind trick on yourself because a panic attack thrives on itself. So you get afraid of the fear. So it's just a snowball that builds and builds and builds. So you have to, and sometimes even say it aloud, you have to almost invite it in, sort of like, I want to have a panic attack, like lie on the floor and almost like accept the panic attack and invite it in. And panic doesn't want to be invited in. You know, it wants you to run away from it. So it sounds weird, but acceptance is such the key. And it's what stopped me getting better for a long time was not accepting, not accepting being scared. So I so badly wanted to be better. I couldn't cope with the concept that I was ill. I literally couldn't cope with it. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a mental person. I didn't want to have that. I didn't want to be sort of like what I saw then in my stigmatizing brain as a sort of a freak or I didn't want that. So I just tried and wanted and acted so hard to be 100% better. And that was so crippling and so the wrong way to go. And and now, I, however intense uh, a bout of depression feels or anxiety i i know deep down the only way to get through it is to reach some kind of acceptance that that's i'm just having this period it's like weather you know i'm in a very stormy place at the moment but eventually that weather's going to change and it's not you know it's not a magic wand or anything but you have to kind of get to that acceptance where you're you're comfortable with being uncomfortable for a little while you you're accepting that not everything's perfect do you think there's a link between our mental health and physical health 
I think in about 50 years' time, I think we will look back and think it's, it's almost ridiculous that we had this total division between mental health and physical health. And we have these separate treatments for mental health and physical health. And I think it will almost look as old-fashioned as, I don't know, something like the four humours or something. And also, I think if, if certainly if me as a young man at 24 had seen mental health almost like physical health, then I wouldn't have any any of that stigma about it. If I'd have seen my panic attacks like asthma attacks, for instance, I, I wouldn't have wanted to hide them from the world or deny them or, you know, I'd have got treatment for the asthma and sorted it out. And I wouldn't it wouldn't have defined me as a person. Whereas I felt like this was a judgment of me as a person. So it, it made me hate myself more. And it was a vicious circle. Mm. So actually going to the doctor and saying, I have a broken leg is very easy, painful, (laughs) but easy. Um, But going um, to get help to say I am really feeling painful thoughts uh, is is difficult. It's more challenging and because there seems to be just more shame, uh, which there shouldn't be, but shame around it. But Matt, coming on to your fear, the fear of losing the ones we love, is a huge fear of mine and I think a huge fear of, of, of possibly most people and something that maybe we don't talk about or discuss because it's too painful to go to that place. Can you can you talk a bit about that, that fear? Well, it's a fear that in 2020 I've had a lot, obviously with all the coronavirus stuff and everything. And it's like, you know, I can remember in March and April, like having a, to ring my parents about five times a day. And um, it's a primal fear. We all have it. I think there was a, a few years ago, there was a survey of the British public of their top fears. And I think... Um, the number one fear was fear of losing someone you love. And we can almost find that more existentially hard than our own death in some ways. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's very hard, like how to be the person who lives after. And then, you know, when I had my breakdown and all through that, it was a nightmare for Andrea for a while because, you know, one of my symptoms was separation anxiety. So I'd get, I'd almost have a panic attack if I was away from Andrea, which made me a nightmare boyfriend um, for a couple of years. But we all have a kind of separation anxiety on a lesser, more normal scale of just, um, you know, being worried about anyone we care for, knowing that that love will one day, or even like what I, I'm, I was really bad at when I was younger, for instance, is having a happy time. So if I was having a happy time with someone, my brain would torment myself thinking, oh, one day this will be a memory and uh, it'll be really sad because I'll be looking back at this happy time. Matt, I have and that. It's like, I have that. Have that. <laughs> yeah. It's so annoying. It's it's like a a time stealer, those thoughts and those feelings of stealing your time. Yes, (laughs) because what you'll be looking back on is how you wasted that time by worrying about the time. Yeah, I know. It's like... Like the only, it's like the only thing you should regret is regret. The only thing you should fear is fear. It's just like, it's stupid. It's utterly stupid. And I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, but this year, probably because of um, what's been going on in the world, I've been reading a lot of Buddhism. And there's this great book called When Things Fall Apart, which was by an American Tibetan Buddhist called Pima Shudron. And um, 
she a lot of it's you know very full, full of great wisdom that applies to you even if you're not a buddhist and it's great on uncertainty and i think our fear of losing people our fear of death our fear of our own death and fear of all of that stuff is about uncertainty you know we we can't cope with uncertainty and and the it's, the thing is with uncertainty and the thing is with the future is we just don't know. Obviously, we know we're not going to live forever and we know no one else is going to live forever. But we have no idea about the things that we think are going to be terrible, how we will actually feel or how we'll cope with it or the good stuff that might come out of it. I certainly know in my own life that things I've often thought were going to be amazing and brilliant and life-enhancing often haven't been. And likewise, things I think are going to be the worst experiences of my life haven't necessarily been, or they have, but the silver lining has been so bright that there's been other stuff. You know, for instance, my suicidal years were the worst experience of my life, but also they were the roots of so much good stuff in my life as well. And just that sense of gratitude I feel, which I couldn't feel without having gone through that. So in Buddhism, they have this idea that joy and despair, you cannot separate the two. You you have them intertwined fully. And a lot of our pain in the West comes from us trying to live a life completely devoid of despair and actually you end up with more suffering by trying to eliminate all suffering so that's the sort of paradox that we have um and i'm really into that and that's been a very sort of therapeutic idea for me because it's like you know it's like i want to talk to my parents and and not be worried about them with coronavirus or uh, my mum had you know heart surgery last year she had open heart surgery and i you know, and it's just like, you, it's just, you don't know. You don't know. You can get hit by a bus at any time and you just have to throw yourself into what you do know. And all we ever know is the present and the future will never exist. The past never exists because the past was always the present. The future is going to be a different present. And all we have is what's in front of us, isn't it? Mm. That's really interesting. And I think right now, more than ever with this pandemic, People are valuing the people they love perhaps even more than, than, than they have done. And there is just such a huge uncertainty going on. The word I'm thinking of right now is time and that we kind of are obsessed with time because we've only got a certain amount of time on this planet. So that uncertainty comes from that concept of time. Um, you have said, is the way to be free from fear to come to a new relationship with a TikTok of minutes and hours and years? And that I'm just relating that to your the fear of losing your loved ones and how we can become free of of that. You know, the reason why we we have this fear of losing people is because we love. It's because we love and without that then we wouldn't love. So is there a way? Is there a way of not feeling this fear so so intensely? I think so. And I think it comes back to that thing about, um, you know, like what we were talking earlier about depression and how how you cope with panic attacks and all negative things. I think it comes about through acceptance. And like, I feel like once we just accept everything as part of a whole, rather than isolating terrible moments and good moments and you know so we so we have like a facebook memories version of life where we have all our sort of happy memories in a row and all our sudden if we see everything as part of a whole i think that's the only way um to do it and to actually just sort of like really commit ourselves to people and to um yeah to i don't mean in a relationship sense i just mean commit ourselves to living and life in the sort of present moment um 
is the only way to do it. Like how we imagine, I suppose, animals um, exist in, in terms of like literally living. They're not, they're not like worrying too much about the future or the past. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what goes on in the mind of animals, but, you know, that's how I imagine it. I feel like as you get older, and I, I'm obviously a lot older than you, I feel that you start to accept loss and ageing a little bit more. Like, there was a, a survey done where they said that, that fear of death is higher among people in their 20s than people in their 70s. And I found that so interesting. So um, one way to counter the fear of death, whether it's your own death or other people, is to realise that if you've got the fear of death, it probably means you're quite far away from death. Because as you get closer to death, you actually get more accepting of the passing of time and all of that stuff. And I, I was someone who desperate, was desperately scared of death. Ironically, right up until I was suicidal, I'm still not great at it. I still love life and want to be alive, but I don't know. There's a sort of acceptance I feel that comes um, as you live. Yeah, and you and you say that one of the things that saved you was love, which I thought was so beautiful. And um, in the series, I'm doing a couple of episodes called Love Itself. So, for the purpose of that, would you could you tell us what you believe love is? Well, love is a million things, obviously. Love is so many different things and there's so many different kinds of love. When I think of love um, in a relationship sense, I feel like love is finding that person that you can be, you know, your weird self with, who you can actually not wear that disguise with. I feel like so much of life we have to kind of put on a front or a face and um, be be an act. Uh, And love... I think allows you to find that person and it may be more than one person or whatever, but find someone who you can actually be true with and be yourself with and who you want to spend time with. And that you, you, you know, the well never runs dry because there's always things to learn about each other and, and you can kind of change and head towards the right direction together who you can sit in silence with and not have to speak and you not have to do and you can just be it's something that you know just kind of is yeah that was beautiful you said this story once about when you looked at the sky that conjured up a lot of thoughts of love for me can you tell that story now about when you were in Yorkshire and you were looking at the sky it was shortly after our son was born and um we were sleep deprived and I was um I was depressed, not because son was born. I don't think it was any postnatal male thing. Uh, I think it was literally sleep deprivation. And I, I, I was just in a bit of a rut and, and I, was, I could feel depression coming back on. And I was, uh, the one thing, the one sort of respite from it was to like go outside and get some air. And um, we lived a little bit outside of York. So the skies were very clear. And, uh, you know, you'd be this massive... Um, cosmos above you and it would you, uh, you staring at it you'd somehow feel less and I used to sort of stare at it not in a sort of not in a wanting to write poetry way but just sort of stare at the sky and just feel very very small and very very tiny on a tiny planet and it, it being an even tinier part of that planet, um, looking at the cosmos, actually I found that very therapeutic because what mental illness often does is it magnifies everything. It magnifies 
you. It magnifies your mind. You become the world. So anything that reminds you of something outside yourself, something bigger than you, um, becomes therapy because it actually shrinks what you're feeling and it places you back in into the universe and into the cosmos and into time. You know, when you're looking at stars, you're not even looking at the present. You're looking at light beams from um, years and years ago. So, yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I, I can wax lyrical about um, stars and yeah, cause, space. Yeah, because I've read um, I've, uh, in this um, lockdown period that people have been looking more at the sky. Um, yeah. Which is really interesting, and I think it's what you say is we're in such a uh, global uh, yeah. problem that it's that people are suddenly, you know, lying down looking at the sky and thinking, "God, we this is we are these tiny, tiny, tiny little things." Yes. <laughs> and in your um, my m- one of my favorite books is uh, Notes on a Nervous Planet. That there's points where you say that that the the planet is due for a, a breakdown. Do you think this pandemic has been a kind of breakdown? Yes, in the sense that it's something like so that feels like a breakdown and a breakthrough at the same point. It feels horrendous, and obviously, you wouldn't you would much rather press the button to make um, COVID disappear. But the fact that this has happened, this horrendous thing, it feels almost like a, a mental health breakdown. Can feel that there are aspects to it um, which can actually lead to good things. So it's been a total breakdown and a change and a massive thing that's forced upon us. That's the interesting thing. It's been a, a life edit that's been absolutely forced upon us in much the same way as a mental illness. And this might seem a bit trivial, but I think what's interesting about certainly lockdown was it was almost like replicating uh, uh, certainly a lot of what my symptoms were uh, in, in terms of having a breakdown. The, it was like an enforced agoraphobia. We were suddenly scared of going out and compulsive hand washing and everything. And it was almost like, I mean, it was very triggering actually for people in those sort of states. But it's been very interesting that we had this sort of forced collective event happen to us that had a real psychological and dimension to it and it was very much characterized by fear um but out of that good things happen you know like lots of people i i suddenly learned the names of people i live near and i i never did before and you know i noticed that people around us actually far from being like you imagined the plague was in london you people were actually being very friendly and smiling and it it felt it felt almost like stepping back in time to a time of community mm. and caring for each other, and that was beautiful. Yeah, like we have become more more connected in a way, even though we're extremely disconnected, yeah. and more of a community, which is which is a positive, isn't it? Yeah, and even the stuff that we miss, it's made us appreciate. You know, like, I mean, I've been watching, I've been on Netflix uh, watching almost every travel-related show they've got because I'm, I really, like, last year, um, like, I, I, because when I was younger, I didn't go on many holidays. Last year, I, I went abroad about 12 or 13 times or something stupid. And this year, obviously, I've uh, been abroad zero times. But I actually know that when I 
next um, go abroad or go to a Greek island or whatever, I will really be grateful and appreciative. And I was getting very blasé and very privileged and not thinking about it. And I think we'll we'll all appreciate our privileges and our, you know, the way we were before. So it is horrible during this period of missing it. But I think we will forever know that it's something that can be taken away and therefore has more value. And and going back to our point about losing people, we sometimes need to have the threat of losing things to value them. And so I think life is more valuable for us being mortal. And likewise, I think we actually can appreciate things now for knowing that not everything is permanent or not everything can be um, taken for granted, whether it's a holiday or just a hug. Yeah, and I yeah, as you say, I think gratitude, just being grateful for what we have is uh, definitely something in this time that I've really, really, yeah. really felt. So, Matt, I'd finish with three questions. So, where do you go when you're feeling fearful? And that could be in your imagination or a physical place. As well as the sky, I like the sea. So I'm lucky I live in Brighton. So often when I'm feeling a little bit worried or anxious, I go for a long run by the sea. um, And that really helps me. What is a song or piece of music you listen to when you're feeling afraid? I I love music. There's so many pieces of music. I've got playlists for this purpose. I will say I've got a soft spot um, for the song Boys of Summer by Don Henley. So I will listen to Boys of Summer. Um, I like a song by um, Frank Ocean called Swim Good. Um, I like all sorts of things. But um, yeah, I will say boys of summer because just the first 30 seconds of boys of summer can take me um somewhere else and it's it's a it's an idea of kind of i don't know west coast america or something that just transports you and what would you do if you were not afraid um you know what i don't even though i live i am someone with anxiety I will disappoint you with this answer because I genuinely don't think there is much that I want to do that I have been stopped for a bit of not being afraid. My biggest fear used to be public speaking. And last year, I forced myself on this big um, theatre tour. And there's one date in the National Theatre and there's all kinds of dates up and down the country and in Dublin and big venues and I was given the choice of whether I wanted to be interviewed like this like talking to someone or to do it on my own and and stupidly or or sensibly three months before I said I'll do it on my own and the reason I said that was because that was the option I was scared of and since having anxiety with a capital A since having anxiety disorder I've actually realized often the very best way to deal with anxiety is to work out what your fears are and within reason if they're not life-threatening to actually do those things to actually to actually do them if you want to get rid of that fear if if it's something you don't want to do anyway then fine don't do it but I I I thought well I'd like to be the sort of person who could actually walk onto the National Theatre on my own and talk to a crowd and I was someone at university who like if I had a presentation to do on art history to 11 people I would be panicking for months beforehand I would be in the union bar drinking a lot of alcohol beforehand and now I know that I am someone who can technically walk on in front of a crowd of 3,000 people and and be okay and survive and do it so it's not that I don't have fears anymore but I don't um 
let them stop me doing things. I used to have a fear of heights as well. And I went on a helicopter over Niagara Falls because my daughter wanted me to. So um, other than bats, I'm, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. But I'm sure you must do so much, you know, because when you're promoting your books and everything, that you do have to go around and do these public speaking. So that must be quite... Consistent. No, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But I think also because I've done it for so long now. I mean, sometimes, like, there's no magic formula. You just kind of have to do it. And if you can start small and get bigger, that's one way to do it. But sometimes you just have to go straight into the deep end and do it. I used to definitely be one of those very awkward writer people who, who would go to, like, a book event in Waterstones or somewhere. And I'd be like, the books would be shaking and my voice would be shaking. It'd be uncomfortable to watch. And, and you know, I'm not that Ed person anymore, but I kind of had to be that person to um, get to being a different person, if that makes sense. Yeah. And Matt, so you've got your book out, The Midnight Library, which I can't wait to read. Um, where can people find you and where can people buy the book? Well, I'm too easily found on social media. I'm always tweeting and on Instagram. Instagram, I'm, I'm happier on Instagram. If you want to see my happier self, it's on Instagram at Matt Z Haig. Um, yes, and the book's available online. Waterstones are doing a nice edition of it. There's an extra chapter in the Waterstones edition, which I, I should mention everywhere I promote the book. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Haig, thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself. This has been wonderful. That's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself, and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.